Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg, and this is the Remnant Podcast. Um, this week's episode is brought to you by Ethos, a better way to find life insurance. More about them in a little while. We are going to do sort of punditry potpourri slash rank punditry uh, today. And um, uh, do you mean the vo- you and the voices in your head? Yes, I pretty much mean that. And the weird thing is, Jack Butler isn't here today, so that was actually another one of the voices. Anyway, no, that's Jack Butler. Uh, welcome. How was your weekend, Jack? Uh, it was long and full of Italians. Um, Italians? No, you know, you didn't celebrate Indigenous People's Day? That's what they call it here in the district. Oh, yeah, right. No, I was in Italy, so it was... A, no, no, that's... No, sorry. not No Indigenous Peoples. Um... Uh, I was alone for three days with my dogs and, um... A couple of mason jars full of urine. Yes, and and it's really hard to take those dogs on long walks when you have Kleenex boxes on your feet. So, <laughs> um, kind of strange. All right, so we should just sort of start with the, uh, I mean, it, you start with impeachment or you start with Syria? Let's start with Syria for a second. I wrote about this in my LA Times column. It'll be in my syndicated column. Um, by the time this goes up, probably, uh, I am very, very, um, frustrated with many of the president's defenders on the serious stuff. And I think I'm the only person who has actually made this argument, although now I see there's a New York Times story today that basically confirms what I was saying, what the, what the, and the defenders of the, the sort of go-to Fox News defenders of Trump on this stuff, the ones who um, I don't know, if, or you know, forget Fox News. Sort of Kurt Schlichter, who was a big defender of the Kurds, and then um, you know, then Trump changes, so he changes, and he's the one that uh, pointed out to Trump that the Kurds weren't with us at Normandy, uh, which, by that standard, we can also throw a whole bunch of other countries and allies under the bus because there were what only. It's only the Brits, the Canadians, and us at Normandy? I want to say there may have been, like, minor, uh, like, French exile troops involved. Yeah, and I think there might have been some, like, Aussie irregulars or something like that with the British or the Canadians, but, like, a Commonwealth force. But it wasn't chock full of our our current, you know, NATO allies. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Certainly, well, the the Germans were technically there. They were. That's true. (laughs) And, uh... Um, but look, there are, there are two things going on here. There's a, there's a serious, I disagree with big swaths of it, but there's a serious argument of a sort of Buchananite or, um, you know, whether you want to call it isolationist, realist, nationalist, uh, anti-globalist, you know, you can pick whatever label you want. Those are, there are serious ideas dangling underneath those labels and they go way back in American history You can go back to Adam, John Adams and, you know, not going around the world to looking for monsters to slay. You can go to the, the Washington farewell address about entangling alliances. Um, I have no problem arguing with people on a theoretical basis about what our foreign policy should be and how much it should be re rejiggered to reflect our, our vital national interests and that maybe we're too plugged in, to various multinational institutions, and we have too many inconvenient uh, or counterproductive and, uh, alliances. All of that is a fine argument to have. And that's the argument that everybody who's defending Trump wants to have. 
All of this talk about endless wars and forever wars and realism and America first and all of that, that's sort of a, it's a strategy. It's a rhetorical safe harbor where they can, t- they can argue about something in the abstract and say that this is what Donald Trump's foreign policy is and how can you be against that? You know, I hear, you know, people like Laura Ingram talking about, you know, how, you know, putting our American troops lives on the line for these situations and they all have families and that's all perfectly that's a perfectly fine point that's also true of troops that we have and i think in over 70 countries that donald trump isn't removing them from but the point is is that even if you believe all of that say you are a soaked to the bone isolationist realist rand paulian you know that you agree with whatever the dragon of budapest is saying this week say you believe all of that what Trump did in Syria is still indefensible because he just friggin' winged it. He did this on the spur of the moment. He It now looks more like he was intimidated by Erdogan than he was trying to ingratiate himself with him. Fine. Which, either way, if you had a serious policy, a serious foreign policy, a serious philosophy that said we need to withdraw from these places and pull out of these places and disentangle from these alliances that no longer serve our interests – you would do something about it. You would set up planning in the Pentagon. You would work with the Kurds to say, hey, look, thank you for helping us defeat ISIS and thank you for you know losing 11,000 troops in the process. But we're not here to sort of police the Middle East and we're going to get out. So what can we do to honor our commitment to you while at the same time not ask, acting as if you're – as as your tripwire in the region we would talk to israel we would talk the president would talk to congress he would follow the advice of his own advisors he did none of that this is the point i make in the column is that this is the first president we've had lots of foreign policy blunders in american history let's just stipulate for the sake of argument that the iraq war was a much bigger blunder than what has gone on in the last 10 days well George W. Bush had all sorts of intellectual and political support from the previous administration, from the U.N., from international inspection agencies, from Congress, from both parties, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden on down. Um, the Bay of Pigs was supported by the CIA and, and the Pentagon. It's fine to point out other blunders in American history. The Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed unanimously in the House and all but two senators in the Senate voted for it. This is the first foreign policy blunder I can think of. That the president of the United States owns entirely because he didn't listen to his own advisors. He went against the will of Congress. He didn't know, he didn't consult with our allies. He says he consulted with everybody. I, except for a Kurt Schlichter column, I'm not clear what that cons- consultation looks like. He just winged this off of one phone call, deviating from his script and plunged a big chunk of the Middle East into chaos, uh, churned up his own political coalition sent this signal to all sorts of allies that were not reliable. And even if you're in favor of all of that forever war, endless war, isolationism, America first, all that stuff, even if you believe in all that stuff, a serious person doesn't implement those policies this way. He may have campaigned to get out of Syria. He did not campaign to either subject the Kurds to potential ethnic cleansing or to force them into an alliance with Bashar Assad and the Iranians and the Russians. He didn't, um, you know, campaign to say the Turks can destroy these guys. He campaigned to get us out of Syria. Well, that's a fine policy program. I, I, there's, that's a, you know, we can debate the, the real politic about it. But 
he didn't follow a program. He just went glandular and made a decision after a simple phone call. And there was no prep. There was no strategic thinking about how to implement this policy, even though this is the same policy that Mattis resigned over months ago. You would think, okay, if this is what Trump really wants to do, Mattis thought this was being done hastily or premature, let's let's figure out a way to do this responsibly. There is zero reporting anywhere. There's zero uh, suggestion from the president of the United States himself that he put an ounce more thought into how to do this since Mattis quit. It is pure ad hocery. And the people who are defending Trump and all this want to stay at 30,000 feet and talk about and demagogue American, you know, American casualties as if people who disagree with them are in favor of American casualties. And they want to talk about American interest and America first. And they don't want to talk about how this was fundamentally a cock up and totally incompetent, regardless of any post hoc ideological rationalization for it. Okay, so I'm, I'm done with that. Hmm. So it sounds Thoughts? like you're not a fan of this decision. I this this decision is truly a piñata, right? I mean, you can hit it from any angle and it'll bear some reward. I I don't I don't know. I heard one Trump defender, um I don't need to get into names talking about how well, you know, this is just the you know, the reason why elites in Washington are against this is because elites are wildly overrepresented with a certain foreign policy view that doesn't conscribe doesn't, doesn't jibe with with Donald Trump's and the thing is there are lots of foreign policy views in this town I don't necessarily agree with them and I think some of these people are hacks and some of some of them are sincere about it but there are lots of people in this town in the foreign policy community who agree with the top line branding of what Trump's foreign policy is but anybody who knows anything about foreign policy knows that this was just an unbelievable you know self-own this was this was a total screw-up and it's not a, and so I, it just it vexes me when I hear people talk about this as if this is a serious foreign policy debate between two respectable sides. There is a foreign policy debate between two respectable sides, but even anyone who's like remotely serious, even if they support this thing in theory, in practice understands that this was an incredibly ass backwards way to do it. So I guess that answers your question. Okay. I'm sorry. So. For for a moment of levity, I would like to return to the John – I think it was Quincy Adams who said the – I'm going to confirm this on my on my device that has access to m- half of mankind's knowledge but also many memes. He was the country's first uh, detective slash medical examiner, right? John Quincy Adams? Oh, no. That's just Quincy. I'm sorry. You're too young to remember the, the Jack Klugman show uh, Quincy. Talk about this on Glop. <laughs> I'm, sure they'll, I'm sure they'll know. It was uh, a great show. Uh, sure it was, Jonah. Sure it was. You're gonna be. This is gonna be you. This is gonna be all all people, all old people in nursing homes to their their millennial slash Gen Z attendant slaves when they have all the wealth and just rambling about old shows. Yeah. Uh, it, it is John Quincy Adams searching for monsters to destroy. Is it really? It's not yeah. John Adams. Yeah, I did not realize that. And uh, you know, I want to take issue with that because look, if there were actually monsters, like literally monsters abroad. I think it's incumbent upon America to to go and destroy them. Like if there were, if it, if we if we were in like a Pacific Rim scenario, sure. And there are kaiju wandering around. We have the world's best military. Are we just gonna sort of let the let the let them destroy Japan? You know, I mean, look, I mean, we we can acknowledge sort of the point that Quincy Adams was trying to make there. 
the same time, this would have been a great chapter for my very underrated book, uh, The Tyranny of Clichés, because I like this a lot. I agree with you. <laughs> like, if we knew a, the sweet meteor of death was barreling towards planet Earth, mm-hmm. that's sort of a monster, right? Yeah. We would we would try to preemptively kill it, as it were, with a with a nuclear warhead or yeah. something. And you're right. If Godzilla was out there stomping around crossing international borders with impunity and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to talk about killing Godzilla because I have a soft spot in my heart for Godzilla. But a lot of Monster Zero was out there. You know, we would, you know, or even Mothra. I never really liked Mothra. Yeah. Moths are gross. But we would we would take steps to do it. I guess the problem is projecting what you think is a monster onto it. But I, I'm, I'm kind of with you in that... You know, it's sort of, you know, would you kill baby Hitler kind of thing. <laughs> Jeb Bush says, hell yeah. That was, his, that was his actual response. That was very, he was very gung-ho about it. Um, but, uh, what was I going to say? I would oh. kidnap baby Hitler and put it up for adoption in another country that didn't have the material circumstances that Weimar Germany would have. That would be my, my more moral solution. Not a bad idea. Um yeah, that's not a bad idea. But the, the 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 thing about going abroad searching for monsters, literal literal monsters to destroy, it's it reminds me of what Reagan said about if if Earth would probably unite if aliens invaded. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. That's right. That's right. That was um, which is a, a very strange off-the-cuff remark for a U.S. president to make. Yeah, my recollection of that because people made fun of him about that at the oh, time. Oh, I'm not making fun of him. No, I know. I'm, I'm wondering why he made it. Well, there's, I, if I remember this right, it's been a while since I've read a Reagan biography, and I'm sure we'll get an email from Steve Hayward. Um, but my recollection is, is he had actually been to space? No, in some <laughs> sci-fi movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know Where that, that was sort of a subplot. Well, that's the plot of Independence Day. Yeah, yeah. And that, the funny thing about that is, is you know, there's that scene in Independence Day where the Israelis and the Arabs meet yep. to, um, you know, confer on the big counterattack. And that scene was censored from the versions that all aired in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, there's my moment of levity just to just to make listeners who are – sort of incensed, or with listeners who let their blood pressures rise with yours as you were ranting. Yeah, okay, now fair enough. Now we're down. So do you want to talk about something else now? Do you want to talk about impeachment to get your blood pressure back up? Sure. Let's do very briefly on impeachment because I've done, I've, I've, I've filled my quota of Trump negativity and I know how much that offends certain listeners, although it's not entirely clear to me why they um, keep listening if they know that's going to come from time to time. But I appreciate it. I want everybody possible to listen. So on the impeachment thing, well, first of all, we're recording this Tuesday morning. And my favorite news item of the day is that John Bolton is coming out of this as like the good guy. Longtime listeners know John Bolton, former colleague of mine at here at AEI, a friend of mine from National Review World, friend of mine from the green rooms of Fox News. I have complicated views about John, but uh, this New York Times story, which basically has him telling Fiona Hill that he doesn't want to be – you should go talk to the White House lawyers about all this because I can't – I don't remember if the quote was, you don't want to be, or if he said, I don't want to be, 
but it was something along the lines of, you don't want to be part of this drug deal that Giuliani and Sondland are working out. And I think this is like one of the real benefits of, of or, or plus sides of John Bolton is that John Bolton was a successful high-end policy official bureaucrat in government because he actually understood how government works and he understood how the law works and he always played within the lines of legality and propriety because as a sort of a lawyer, he was always anticipating that eventually stuff leaks and all the rest. And so many of the people, I mean, the, ama- the amazing thing to me is that Giuliani was actually kind of known as a lawyer for a while <laughs> and he hasn't learned any of this because it, I, I, it will not shock me if Giuliani ends up going to jail. I'm not saying he should. I'm not saying that the evidence is there yet. But the the Southern District of New York uh, suit, our, our, our probe, I think sounds pretty ominous. And I think the corners that Giuliani has been cutting for a while now are kind of outrageous. But on Twitter for weeks now, I've been tweeting little sort of jokey things of showing, you know, Bond villains stroking their cat or whatever and just saying, John Bolton right now. Because I've been waiting for the various is is sort of an entire Florsheim warehouse of shoes to drop that he is that he has been plotting in all of this. And um, anyway, so I think that's all fascinating. Um, on the impeachment in general, I think I'm t- I'm kind of torn by this. On the one hand, I think that the Cipollini is that how you pronounce it? Cipollini. Cipollini? God, who is who is that? He's a White House counsel who wrote this. Oh, Cipollone. That's Cipollone. Is that what I've it been is? saying? It. Yeah, I just it's... we should have we should have thought about this over Columbus Day. We probably should have. Um, or ask some of our someone. I mean, it sounds like a small shell-shaped pasta of some kind. Um, that, that's that's a that's a slander against our Italian listeners. I I I. I, not not everything Italian is a pasta. No, but I think there's one that just sort of look. I love I love Italy. I love Italians. Uh, some of your best friends are Italian. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the but the this whole Ukraine thing is starting to reek of Putinesca sauce. But that's a different issue. <laughs> uh, people can look it up. Anyway, so. Um, Impeachment. Where were we? Oh, so the White House wrote this six, eight-page letter that was subsequently reported Trump sort of uh, had notes on and punched up, and which he sort of added some crazy to it. And I think it was David French who described it as a, a legal hate crime. The whole thing is, I think, legitimately absurd, the argument that they're making about uh, impeachment being unconstitutional or illegal and that... You need to do all of these things to, you know, you need to vote on the main floor. You know, as a legal argument, I think it's hot garbage. But as a political argument, it's less clear to me. It does seem to me that if you're going to impeach somebody, the process should seem fair. And I just think that this White House is the last White House, or is the last party to any of this, who should be crying about fairness. And so the whining, I think, is, is is sort of problematic. Yes, they've been treated very unfairly by the press, but Donald Trump is very happy to treat his enemies unfairly as well. And this is now just raw political combat. And I think that the story is changing a little bit. <laughs> One thing I think is very good for the administration is that is that it increasingly looks like the actual quid pro quo wasn't the withholding of aid. But the withholding of a White House meeting uh, with Zelensky, it's not 
100% clear, but that's sort of what the text seems to be between these diplomats seems to be implying. And even though I think that's bad, and I think it's arguably impeachable, um, there's just a different in, difference in magnitude of holding up vitally needed aid to a country that is trying to f- fend off military aggression from Russia that has been congressionally approved and expedited for your own political ends versus holding off uh, or sort of or dangling a photo op in the White House. I mean, they're just they're sort of different things in terms of chips um, political, even though both can be con- seen as a violation of the public trust. Both can be seen as misusing the office. It just one seems much smaller than the other. That said, we still don't know if the aid was withheld in an attempted quid pro quo, whether or not the Ukrainians were aware of it or not remains to, you know, they say they weren't aware. I'm not, I'm still not sure I buy that entirely, but whatever. If Trump's only reason for holding up the aid was to have more leverage over Ukraine, he could still be in a lot of trouble. But at least for right now, the paper trail or the text, the digital trail seems to be pointing that the actual quid pro quo wasn't a um, the, the aid stuff, but of a, a White House Oval Office meeting. And that lets some of the tension out of this. But who knows what's being said behind closed doors in all of this. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of there's a lot of we don't know what we don't know stuff still going on. Are you actually I've never asked you. Do you think you should be impeached over this stuff? Uh, Do you want to commit to that? I, I'm not. I am not committing to anything. Okay. I, I, millennials are afraid of commitment. Does it bother you that you know that you are no longer when you say millennials, you're describing an age cohort that is no longer the sort of the hip young people anymore, and that Gen Z is the one that's replacing you? Um, a little bit, but I, I, it is kind of interesting to observe a younger generation from afar now. Um, like when I chaperone these trips. Uh, to that, uh, to of students from my high school, they have all sorts of strange behaviors that I have to make sense of. Yeah, uh, the way they use social media is very different. Yeah, um, the way they interact with each other is mostly the same. Um, how is it? How are they using social media different? Well, they they're they're big fans of Snapchat and Instagram now. Yeah, those are and fa- Facebook is for old people. Uh, they only they usually only get Facebooks when they uh, go to college and they have to uh, find a roommate or something. Yeah, and that that's because this is a, this this is now someone who they cannot connect with in their existing social network, and so they have to create a new sort of digital existence that can be transferred to a new network. And yeah, there's just all sorts of weird stuff. Shout out to our Gen Z listeners if there are any. <laughs> Uh, all right, shout out to our Gen Z listener. Listener. Um, but, and it's the one thing I, you know, we should t- say to our Gen, I actually think, I'm pretty sure we have more than one Gen Z listener. Um, um, I'm actually pretty confident about that because I, I meet these interns and, and college kids all the time who say that they listen to the remnant and they're, they're Gen Z, right? That's Gen Z. I believe so. Yeah. Yes. But you know, one thing that is, that I think that the, the Gen Z crowd and the millennial crowd have in common is that they, they think they're going to live forever, and that makes them unlikely to get life insurance. And one thing is certain in life. Expect the unexpected. And if you want to be prepared for the unexpected, Ethos can make sure your family is taken care of no matter what. 
You may be putting off getting life insurance because you think it's complex, expensive, and time-consuming. Ethos is a faster, easier, and more affordable way to get life insurance to make sure your family is taken care of, even if you aren't around to take care of them. They're committed to finding the plan that's best for you and your budget, all from the comfort of your computer, tablet, or phone in just 10 minutes or less. Simply answer a few questions online about things like your health, age, and income, then Finish your application and get a near instant approval. Everyone is different, but a healthy 35-year-old can get $1 million of coverage for only $50 a month. With Ethos, you can rest easy knowing the people you love are taken care of. Confusing terms and piles of paperwork not included. So, our listeners can get started by going to ethoslife.com slash Dingo, and click on Check My Price. That's ethos, E-T-H-O-S, life, dot com, slash dingo, and then click on Check My Price. One more time, make sure to visit ethoslife.com slash dingo so they know we sent you. And that's the that's really the important thing here is, you know, look, just go Shop around for price, you don't no commitment around, but you're helping us. You're helping our new uh, um, venture, the dispatch. If you go out there and you just saturate all of these places with the word dingo as best as possible, um, because then we get uh, positive feedback from our advertisers, and we are delighted to have ethos helping sponsor this show. All right, so should we probably we should probably turn to. Uh, more rank punditry, and um, in this case, the the Democratic primaries. We are. Oh, rec- you didn't even need me to prompt you. Yeah, I know. We are uh, um, recording this before the big Democratic debate on Tuesday night. So in Ohio, is it in Ohio? That's in Westerville, a suburb of Columbus. Shout out to. I know we have Columbus listeners. It is it, uh, so. Shout out to them. Weird tangent. My uh, wife was away this weekend in New England with a bunch of her buddies from Marquette, and uh, uh, and one of her friends was like, "You should get all of us together, all these like drinking buddies she had decades ago at Marquette. You'd have them all come on the remnant." <laughs> and um, and she brought it up unbidden. So apparently, at least among the the crowd who used to work at the Mug Rack or frequent Wolskis. In, in Milwaukee, we have at least one one listener. So shout out to them. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> my standard line for a long time has been... Get these squirrels off of me. Get these squirrels off of me. No, it has been uh, um, that Trump can't win, but the Democrats can lose. I think that came up even when we were talking to Mo Alethe. And... Um, what I just mean by that is if you just go if you just play with the electoral college map, if you look at the historical trends and polls, if you look at the fact that Trump has shrunk his coalition since he got elected in two thousand sixteen and the demographics have moved even further away from the dem- the demographics that he needs, um it just becomes very, very difficult to see how he could possibly win and then you look at the Democrats and you think, oh, that's how he could yeah. win because <laughs> they can, you know, so the line is, you know, Democrat, Trump can't win, but the Democrats can lose. And it is, 
it is just astounding to me how much the Democrats are committed to um, embracing positions and attitudes, really. I mean, it's the attitudes I think are a bigger problem in some ways than the positions because they can always change their positions um, that are going to just turn off the the median voter or at least a lot of median voters. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, you know, had that totally set up line at that CNN town hall. And those CNN town halls, I think if the Democrats end up losing, will go down in history as um, a big reason why. They are incredibly dumb. They have they do it on these woke issues that um, uh, that the the liberal base wants everyone to talk about, but nobody disagrees. <laughs> and so it's like, what do you call it? Like you know, a a there are like in biology there are mediums or media that make it very easy for cells to reproduce in or whatever. Oh yeah, they're like. Um... The, the, there's a specific kind of culture. Yeah. I mean, these things are like the perfect Petri dish. Oh, that's it. Is yeah, that- yeah. I guess so. Yeah. For rapid onset woke dementia and the way they um, keep you – know, like, and so everybody – because here's the problem. Because they all agree, it becomes a competition over intensity – Rather than a competition over ideas or, or positions, um, it's a very similar to the problem the GOP got into in, in the late 2000s and um, early 2010s, where the GOP basically gave up on the idea of persuasion and instead everybody promised to be the purest version of conservative. And so you have all these people who agree on everything and so they're only comparative because the the issues are narrowly defined. You know, the, the LGBTQIA, I think, it, issues. And because everybody agrees, the only way to have a comparative advantage is to say that you agree with these things more than anybody else. It reminds me of when we were looking for private schools for my daughter when she was little in D.C. And almost all but one school, the one we ended up sending her to, they all acted as if the only variable parents cared about was diversity. And for me, diversity is fine. It's good. It's like part of my checklist along with a good gym and, you know, and a strong athletic program or whatever. You know, I don't, you know, whatever. I'm not against diversity, but it's not, it's not a singular criteria that I apply to these questions. You know, price is one too, you know, and, but because they all thought everybody was bought in on diversity, each school kept insisting that they they were the ones who cared the most about diversity. And you get this sort of same dynamic on these stages where everyone is trying to outdo each other. Um, it sort of reminds me of that press conference scene from The Right Stuff where each one is trying to like out, you know, righteous and patriotic, the other guy on the on the platform. And so anyway, the the question, which was, I think it's now been confirmed, but even if it wasn't, you know, it felt like a planted question about what Elizabeth Warren would say to somebody who says, look, I'm a traditional person. I just believe a marriage is between a man and a woman. And she does this clearly planned two-part zinger thing where she says, first of all, I'm going to assume it's a man asking the question. I don't know why, right? I, I, I know women who think that 
marriages between a man and a woman. You know, look, and I'm I'm not a big anti-gay marriage guy, but I just I have respect for certain people of a certain generation who come from a certain way of life that see, have a religious values and and see the, these issues that way. And she should too, because she's running for president and needs their votes. Like I shouldn't be the one like doing this. She should be the one doing this. But anyway, also she's from Oklahoma. She's from Oklahoma, and she wants to be folksy. And so first of all, she says, "I assume it's a man." And I said, "I would say, um, well, then go marry one." And then you know, for the coup de grace, she comes around and says, "That is, if you can find one, because you know, you know, the assumption being that if you're a." dude who's of traditional values that you just can't get a woman because you're a loser or something like that. The audience loved it. Uh, Blue checkmark mainstream media journalists loved it. They, oh, they gushed about what a brilliant answer it was and all this kind of stuff. And this is the problem you get when you do these town halls, halls where you're trying to convince a base that you've already convinced to love you the most, right? So, like, She's preaching to the choir. She's got to sing louder than everybody else. She does this thing that, that the choir loves, but everyone else not watching the bait at this moment who's going to see this clip for the next year, they're like, wow, that was a pretty smug, condescending, contemptuous thing to say. And it was a smug and condescending, contemptuous thing to say. And I don't get what purpose it serves, in particular because, look, I mean, maybe she is just... You know, this is the thing that Mo Alethe was talking about on this podcast um, last week. The Democrats are making a bet that populist intensity is more important than left-right stuff. And I, that he may be right about that. I've heard versions of that from other people. But you know who's really important for ginning up the Democratic turnout? Uh, African-American voters, particularly middle-aged and elderly African-American voters, and they disproportionately go to church a lot. And they disproportionately believe in this stuff. And she thinks that, like, this isn't going to trickle out. I just think is is to, to that constituency, I think, is kind of nuts. And I so all of this gets to what I think really explains what's happened to the Democratic Party in the last decade or so, is that they've been taken over by the campus left. And the campus left is very particular. This is one of the reasons why, you know, I keep saying on this podcast, I said this last week, that it's so strange that the African-American vote has become the sort of pragmatic, uh, mitigating, sort of uh, uh, constituency that's pulling the Democratic Party a little bit more towards the center on a lot of issues, where historically it's always been the reverse. And it's because the campus left cares about issues that, um, you know, the black voters care about some of them, like the criminal justice stuff and all that. But these woke white college educated liberals are way more, you know, jazzed up about climate change, about pronoun policing um, and um, about peeing from a great height on sort of traditional religious Americans. And they seem to have forgotten that a big chunk of the coalition of traditional religious Americans are actually African-Americans. This is, you know, we've seen this in Iowa where there are some, um, er, and in Indiana, where there are, you know, black pastors who don't like Buttigieg because of his 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 positions you know, on, on gay marriage and whatnot, and maybe because he's gay too. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to ascribe bigotry to it, but that kind of stuff that plays really well at Kenyon and Vassar doesn't necessarily play well to blue-collar people of... of 
are people from traditional, you know, religious family backgrounds. And they seem utterly oblivious to this. And it's kind of fascinating. And I mean, Beto is the best example because he is becoming, well, I put it in the G file last week. He's kind of like, he's straw man golem. Yeah. Straw man golem. He is like becoming. And we should probably, you should probably, or we should probably explain that what a golem is, not, not the Lord of the Rings. Right. Different spelling. Yeah. So, um, a golem is a, it's, it's from Jewish mysticism and, uh, folklore. And basically, the, it usually takes place in Prague. I didn't know about that part. Yeah, so the thing is, it's about like a rabbi or a myst- Jewish mystic who basically creates a living being um, out of clay, um, and then things go awry. We'll just leave it there. But uh, uh, Mary Shelley got the idea for Frankenstein from the golem myths of Eastern Europe. And um, and it's basically this you know classic tale of... Uh, man trying to create life, the, having the hubris of, of taking the place of God and creating life, and God tends to punish hubris pretty badly. And I think that's actually technically what hubris means, right? In the Greek, it means to like, it's like to presume your have godlike quality or divinity or something like um, that. Um, I'm not sure what it literally means, but I know that hubris and nemesis go are supposed to go hand in hand. Nemesis right. being the sort of uh, punishment. For um, for for the hubris, um, and uh, straw man from debate just is something like when I say, like let's put it this way: a month ago, if I had said, or two months ago, if I had said, uh, liberals want to destroy any religious institution that doesn't agree with them, or liberals want to confiscate all of the guns, even by force if necessary. People say, that's not really what liberals believe. You're just creating a straw man because that makes it easier for you to blah, 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 blah. Well, no, now we have Beto (laughs) (laughs) O'Rourke. Because Beto O'Rourke is embracing basically every position that um, the sort of hot take right had to kind of invent um, for liberals or pick someone way further out of the mainstream and hold up like a Medusa's head. Now they've got Beto. And I think, you know, Beto's on this weird journey where he... it's almost like he's trying to become a lifestyle brand rather than an actual political force. You know, we're a few steps away, but like, you know how in, um, in with like boy, like with, with teenage rock stars, you know, things are going to end badly the moment they get a pet monkey. Um, I kind of feel like we're like, what are some examples? Who, 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 Justin Bieber, Michael Jackson. Um, there's another one. It's like, it, to me, it's always been just as criminology. I always think that like these guys don't have friends that they can trust, and they've got an insane amount of money. And it's like, I'll I'll get a monkey. I'll get a monkey butler. That'll be my guy. And then like it, it just, but it's a sign that you're so far gone in your bubble that you're making really poor decisions. <laughs> and um, wasn't Michael Jackson's monkey named Bubbles? I think that might be right. Hmm. Um, two on the nose. Anyway. <laughs> so to speak. I can just see Beto pretty soon having, you know, his, his woke monthly monkey butler and then apologizing for calling it a butler because that presumes, you know, a different in status and all animals have equal rights. And then he'll go and, and, uh, and make Wesley J. Smith all mad and start treating it like a human. And then 
Then we can all then then we'll all the people on the right will be like, see, we told you, you did think that a man is a is a is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. That's right. The straw man golem embraces every position that a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. That's right. The, that's the that's that, the, and it's a line from Ingrid Newkirk. Um, so and, uh, and a Wesley J. Smith book. And a, right. Um, so where was I? Um, so anyway, I. I am just singularly astounded at how I saw Bob Costa, my old colleague from NR now at the Washington Post, made this point. And it's a good one. Bernie Sanders is sort of is is in some ways the Barry Goldwater of the left. You know, by losing in 1964, he, fund, he nonetheless fundamentally changed the Republican Party, moved uh he was basically a battering ram for the slow takeover of the conserv- of the Republican Party by conservatives. And Bernie Sanders, by losing in 2016, was part of the slow takeover of the Democratic Party by, you know, calling them socialists, I think, is the wrong word. Um, it's really the campus left. But, you know, this is a point, I, we don't want to get deep in the weeds on this, but I keep getting asked to talk about socialism. <laughs> and... I keep trying to impress upon people that yeah, socialism is bad and that socialism um, in terms of an economic theory. I like Bernie Sanders last weekend was talking about how we have to have socialism because there's too much price fixing in capitalism. What What is socialism other than a massive scheme of price fixing? (laughs) Um, um, But anyway, uh, I think all these young people who are really into socialism – it's really more about much like the you know the 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 post liberal nationalists on the right it has much more to do with sort of the poetry and sociology of wanting to belong to a community and all that kind of stuff um or being dissatisfied with the status quo which they label capitalism and so you can call them socialists but it's it's not an economic theory it's a psychological predisposition it's a psychological dispensation or mindset and um, the the economic theory gets added on from time to time as a post hoc rationalization rather than sort of the core of it. I, I guarantee you not one in a hundred of the people who are calling themselves socialists have read, you know, Karl Marx or any of serious socialist theory about economics. They just want to live in a country where people get along better and where the government looks out for them and where we're nicer and we do good things and and they call that socialism because they think socialism is the opposite of capitalism and they think what we have now is capitalism. Anyway, so have you seen the uh Joker? I have not and I'm I'm sort of debating whether I want to see it cuz it seems the reviews that I have read suggest that it's just, it's a well-made film but that is just has no morally redeeming quality to it. That they're without without Batman or some like countervailing force to around Joker is just a f- just having him alone in a movie just doesn't really uh, you you feel that the the absence of good and evil just sort of spills into this vacuum and and sort of takes it over. Yeah, I, I, we talked about this a bit on Glop. I'm still and for those of you who don't know, Glop is the Ricochet podcast I do with. Rob Long and John Padoritz, hence the name Glop. It's actually called Glop Culture, right? Yeah. And it's uh, Goldberg, Long, and Padoritz. And the only reason I get 
first billing is because of the euphony of the word glop. Yeah. Um, better than plog. <clears throat> yeah. Although, anyway. Uh, oh, plog, I don't... It sounds like a euphemistic verb that we don't need to explore. So, um... Or a 50s B movie. Oh, wait, no, that's trog, and that was 60s. You heard of trog? I haven't, but I've heard of the blob, <laughs> which was... There were several of those. Um, what was trog? Oh, it was a... It, I, I can't remember, and if either of them were alive, either of them would be furious that I can't remember which one is in it, but either Betty Davis or Joan Crawford is in it. It's one of... Whoever it is, his last movies, and it's just about a really like poorly made up monster that comes out of a cave and just sort of threatens a town. Hmm. Okay. Sort of sounds metaphorical for 2016. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, uh, so anyway, The Joker, I liked it. I can't say I really enjoyed it. It's not an enjoyable movie to sit through, really. And a couple things I thought were interesting about it was that one, it's, it's the, well, I think one of the reasons why the left dislikes it so much is that, um, first of all, there's all this stuff about how it glorifies the incel, white male, mass murderer stuff. And I, I just, I, I don't buy it. It does not make it seem particularly glamorous. And if you're, if you're the kind of person who seems, who is inclined to find justification for that kind of thing, there are more apt and fitting examples of that kind of stuff all over the place in pop culture and in video games and whatnot. And I don't think the Joker is going to activate anybody because they do make the guy seem like a loser for most of it. But what's funny, what's sort of funny, quirky about it to me is that it's the theme of it is actually very left wing. Um, and, and there would be a time where it would have gotten more purchase on the left because it's, it's all about the have screwing the have nots, you know. The jo- one of the reasons the Joker become the, the this whatever his name Arthur becomes the Joker is that they slash city services and public and health services for and mental health services, and um, uh, and it's very in keeping with the philosophy of like Bane in the first in the last Dark Knight movie, mm-hmm. and um, and. But because it's because the Joker is so obviously a bad guy, I think a lot of them like they don't like the fact that they're making a bad associating a bad guy with you know the the sort of the the Bernie Sanders program. <laughs> um, and um, I think I think the major flaw with it is that I mean there are a bunch of minor. I don't I want to say they're flaws. It's just different, and it's not a very Gothamy. Gotham, it's much more like the New York City I grew up with in the 1970s. I mean, it looks remarkably like it, and that part is really well done. But it's, um, um, they take the Joker's laugh and turn it into a, a medical condition that is unintended. Like, he laughs, not, he doesn't laugh because he thinks things are funny. He laughs because when he feels stress, it's like dogs yawning. You know, it's not like, um, he doesn't find mirth in terrible things. He just laughs whenever he feels awkward, which is a, I think, a weird um, rewrite of the Joker's personality. And you know, it's possible at the end that all of a sudden he now becomes corrupted by his own laugh and does laugh at at terrible things. But it's not entirely clear to me. Um, but they also don't have him with anything. I mean, I know the Joker doesn't have superpowers, but at least in the um, the 
other iterations of him, he had some sort of knowledge of grime stuff, right? Or knew how to fight. And there's no evidence he knows how to do any of those things. We only ever see him getting um, beaten up on the street or shooting people. And the whole movie could have been made the exact same way if they hadn't gotten the rights to to the name Joker and to Gotham. If It could have been just a movie about the clown, about a guy going crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm kind of tempted. There, me and Kyle Smith and somebody else were talking about this on Twitter. Um, I'm somewhat tempted to think that he actually won't end up being the Joker from the from the actual comic book canon. Uh, the TV show Gotham plays with this. There are a lot of people who are like influences on the real Joker who doesn't emerge till later and all this kind of stuff. There might be another – the actual supervillain, the Joker, might emerge down the road having been influenced by this guy who called himself Joker um, or something like that. Because the age differences between Bruce Wayne and the Joker in this are just way too great. Um, oh, so Bruce Wayne is in it. Yeah, it's like an eight-year-old boy. and Uh-oh. And what's his thing? Joaquin Phoenix is like – he looks 35, 40 years old in this. And and that age difference doesn't make a lot of sense either. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it also could just be a standalone, although it's made so much money, I find it inconceivable that they wouldn't make more, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the whole – talk about Putinesca. So anyway. So – should people see it? Oh, I don't know. No, I, 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 should I thought that's what you were about to ask me. Cause, but oh, well, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's the performance is great. The cinematography is great. It's interesting, but it's um, it's not a fun time at the movies. <laughs> okay, good to know. Now, dispatch. Tell me, tell me about the dispatch. What what is new in dispatch world? Um. Things are going well in Dispatch World. Um, for listeners who aren't aware, which would be strange, we launched, um, I think, a week ago today. Yeah. And we are moving as quickly as we can to ramp up the newsletters. We're doing, I think we're going to try and do th- this week three newsletters a week with the Morning Dispatch, which is sort of our news digest with some reporting in it. Hopefully, we're going to get more and more reporting in it. You know, reporting is hard. And... um you know, there have been a bunch of things I've been working on behind the scenes to help out with the guys and you put a lot of work in and then somebody else gets the story or it doesn't pan out and it's just, it feels like a lot of wasted labor and can be really frustrating. And there's a reason why so many websites just do these sort of aggregators of other people's reporting stuff because it's just so much easier to have a hot take on somebody else's stuff than to report your own. But we're kind of dedicated to building this up. Uh, response has been great. Um, we, uh, these lifetime memberships, which I should probably clarify to some people, this was our attempt to capture the support of, of people of means who liked what we were doing in a sort of a, in a Patreon play kind of thing as a vote of confidence in what we are doing. And so we offered these lifetime founding membership things, uh, subscriptions for, uh, $1,500 a pop. And we didn't know if it was going to work at all or if it was uh, just going to be a total failure. It has worked out much better than we could have foreseen. Um, we're really, really happy for it. We're unbelievably grateful for it. It's such a great vote of confidence in us. But for people who can't afford that, we totally understand. We are not asking people. That is not the only 
level of support or price for subscription. The actual price for subscription uh, we haven't settled on, but it's going to be something along the lines of ten bucks a month, you know, somewhere in there, and or a hundred bucks a year or something like that. But everything's free for right now. We're going to be start adding more and more newsletters almost every week, or at least that's what we're going to try to do. I am going to try and up the frequency of the G file, so I believe I'm going to send out one today. And then uh, again on Friday, and then maybe next week I'll try to do it three times a week. It's all a work in progress. It's the the it's sort of like something millennials don't do, but uh, driving um, a manual transmission car. You know, you try to get up through every gear on the way to your top speed without redlining it in any gear. And so we are trying to speed up as quickly as we can. Uh, we don't even have our emails set up yet. We haven't moved into our office yet. There's still a lot of stuff to be done, but everyone's very enthusiastic and very excited about it. And um, I hope people will go and read our, our manifesto and they'll subscribe and they'll ask people to subscribe. Um, you know, if you can't afford to be a founding member and all that kind of stuff, that's fine by me, but you can really help by promoting the newsletters um, whether it's mine or the Morning Dispatch or soon-to-be stuff by David French and then some other exciting ones would be coming down the line and we're going to have more podcasts. If you can help through word of mouth to promote this stuff, it would just be hugely important to us and hugely um, helpful because, you know, one of the reasons why we're doing all this stuff for free and we're not doing the advertising and in the beginning is that we want to focus on building up our subscriber base. We want to focus on building up our membership base. And there'll be a lot more stuff available come January when the website is fully up and functioning. But you can help us now by just spreading the word. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that we say. It doesn't mean you have to love everything that we do. But if you think what we're trying to do is important um, or at least laudable, um, you can help. And we would really love it for people to help. Um, so that's about all I got on the dispatch. Um, that was admirably sincere of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know how I hate doing sincerity. Um, but now that sounded also sincere. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, I, I, you know, like I love national review. I revere national review, but I always hated doing the begathon, the pledge drive stuff. Not because I didn't believe anything I was saying. It's just like, I've feel like asking people that kind of stuff. I always, you know, I everyone tells me, not everyone, I should say, but everyone in sort of in publishing and that kind of world always tell me, like, you can't beg and promote enough your own books, but it always feels kind of cheap. And I don't, doing that kind, don't like doing that kind of stuff. But um, sometimes It's the choice of a new generation. <laughs> but sometimes you, you just sort of have to. Um Oh, so I wanted to ask you before we get out of here, because we got I gotta get out of here soon. I got a flight to catch. Um What do you make of this dude who broke the two hour barrier on marathon running? Um so I have complicated views. Um so Do you think it's sad? <laughs> it's sad for me. This is why <laughs> Like this is to you. This is you. You the the nature of this feat is sort of just completely mystifying to you. You and others in the world don't really understand what what it means. You just know it's significant. It's impressive. I mean, I get that it's impressive. Knowing that I couldn't run if I started training today, it would maybe probably could never do it. 
but it would at least take me years to be able to run the slowest mile that he ran. No, you would never be able to run the slowest mile that he ran. Yeah, no, that's right, because he did like a four and a half minute miles, right? Or, 26 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, no okay. I, if I started training today, I might be able to do triple his slowest mile. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can, I am in the position of understanding what he did in a way that like I can run for like f- three or four miles at that pace. Yeah. Uh, maybe even five if I'm, if I'm on, if I'm on, um, uh, what's the stuff called? PCP. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, uh, 20, to do it to 26 times, I just, that, that's just really, so I guess people, people who listen to this podcast and people who I speak to in ordinary life to whom I describe my running feats and are impressed by them, uh, seeing this, seeing what he has done. Yeah. Now I know how they feel, and it's, uh-huh. it's very Brobdenag and Lilliput, uh, and me being the Gulliver here. Uh-huh. Elliot Kipchoge is really the the Brobdenag to my 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 Gulliver. Um, I don't think I've ever heard Brobdenag used without the adjective Brobdignagian or Brobdignagian. Yeah, that's just the place. It's called Brobdenag uh-huh. uh, in in Gulliver's Travels. The the, adjective, that's the place where the giants are. Yeah. 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 The adjective form is the more popular one. Uh, as for the um, the feed itself, so he's been they've been trying to get this done for the better part of like well, I mean for a long time, mm-hmm. but for they've been specifically designing like experimental situations to achieve this. Uh, like there was Nike even made this like weird shoe to try to do it about a year ago. And I, I oh, wait, so but what will you say experimental? Because I, I saw that this doesn't count as the world record technically because. The, there was some, I, I assume, because of these experiment kind of things. Yeah, I and this but is it the track that is also different. The, yeah, well, this happened in um, the last time too, before, when he didn't break two. It's there. I I feel I I have weird feelings about like these situations where you just basically isolate every possible variable just to like mm-hmm. say, oh, I guess it is possible under perfect laboratory conditions for this to be achieved. Uh, just to say, like, oh, now, now it is possible for the human body, theoretically, or at least one human body <laughs> in right. all of history, uh, to 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 achieve this feat. Uh, I would rather this be done, like, as the product. I don't know, at the Berlin Marathon, that's a flat course, uh, like of a, of of uh, Kipchoge and like some of his rivals, like really just going at each other, mm-hmm. and then it just so happens that. One of them in winning is like a one fifty nine fifty or something mm-hmm. like that. That that seems more authentic to me. But I, I I have a sort of strange relationship to the professional running world. I don't really follow it that closely for the for the reasons that I uh, alluded to in the beginning of my answer. I I don't find it. It I I don't find it, weirdly perhaps among athletes. I don't find their efforts inspiring i find them discouraging to myself uh-huh. because i i try to live within my own the world of my own running accomplishments to a significant degree what's well, funny because like this is one of these things i think uh <coughs> in sort of elite high schools um and I, I don't mean elite like the very best high schools i just mean expensive private schools and and public schools in expensive neighborhoods well, at least on the east coast and i'm pretty sure in california too among, let me know how to put this. Among the set of people where you wouldn't be shocked to find out some parents have mastered Photoshop to get their kids into college, uh-huh. right? It is more and more difficult for for kids just to play sports 
to enjoy sports. Yeah. Because the it is such a, a strategy to get into college that, like, these kids, like, uh, my daughter has friends who have had ba- personal basketball coaches from a very young age. And it is their strategy to get into college playing basketball. And, um, and the kids take it so intensely, not for the thrill of the sport, but as like their, yeah their ticket. And it makes for just sort of the, the amateur love of playing a sport kind of gets lost in the process. And I, it's sort of the same thing, I guess, uh, how you feel about some of these guys in the professional. Oh no, I just, the Kipchoge look, he is almost another, he is a better form of human being <laughs> than than uh than I am and uh he should be probably doing this with his with his abilities um but I think that's a, that's I don't know if that's the same thing but I'm certainly against that trend as well because for one thing it's actually often bad for kids to mm-hmm. to do repetitive uh to like be specializing from such a young age because when you're yet that young uh it's bad for your uh muscles and bones to be doing repetitive activities in of that nature. Um, Although I got to say the wheel of pain worked out for Conan. It did. And we have m- many years ago, I don't I don't remember if it was recorded or not. So it, if it if it wasn't it doesn't matter. Um what is a podcast but a conversation that was just recorded? But uh, I I'm I'm, I'm... No, I'm just being I'm being amusing philosophically. Okay. Like what what's the difference between a I missed the connective tissue between the wheel of pain and the what is a Well, I we discussed before. I was just mentioning that we had this we had this conversation, but I couldn't remember if it was recorded or not. And oh, so oh, oh, oh. about com- the wheel of pain. Yeah, if a conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. falls in the forest, is it really a podcast? That's right. Um, um but no, that that you 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 raised the, your your uh qualm with the way that the Conan's muscle distribution right. happened, because it was it looked like a, a very much a a uh, an arm an upper body focused workout, and yet his legs seem to have gotten equally muscular. Yeah, I was just like it just you know like and he was moving. Oh yeah, that your no your specific complaint was he was moving in the same direction the whole time. Right, so he should have had like one side of him should have been more muscular <laughs> than the other or something like that. Maybe he switched and we just didn't see that. But that's it's possible. It's possible. And they might have had them do other labor that, you know, fix things. So Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, thanks to everybody. Please subscribe to whatever newsletters and visit the dispatch. And please spread sh- spread the word on this podcast as best you can. We really appreciate it. We have uh, some exciting guests in the pipeline. And um, we're incredibly grateful for the outpouring of support that we've gotten from everybody about what Steve and I and everybody else are trying to do. And um, I'll see you next time. By Grabthar's hammer, you shall be avenged. (laughs) I'm going to start doing new lines now.
ready? Yep. 